Sometimes inadvertence looks like intentional. And so I think that obviously compliance on the front end is any contractors, frankly, any commercial business that does work with government contractors. That's where you should be investing your time and energy to make sure you're in compliance from the very beginning to avoid the potential ramifications that are more expensive down the road. Welcome to GovCon Live. I'm your host, John Williams, and this is the sixth episode of XREL Radio, our multi-part series on the False Claims Act, which includes commentary on potential pitfalls for your company, enforcement issues, and emerging trends in this important area of the law. Today we're talking to Matt Feinberg, partner and chair of our litigation and dispute resolution group. We'll discuss developments that define the False Claims Act in 2019 as well as trends that will affect government contractors in 2020. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and we hope to have some fun, too. But we're not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply, and the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. All right, disclaimer over. Let's have some fun. Hey, Matt, how are you? Hey, John. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. You're in the hot seat once again. I guess we didn't scare you off the last time. No uh, fright here. I, I actually have to sit in on all of these podcasts, from, at least from outside the door. So ready for my trip. It's been a great series. The last episode, just about a month ago, on small business program fraud and how that intersects with the False Claims Act, which really does a great job of marrying up two of our key practice areas here. And earlier in this series, we've heard about cyber, we've heard about healthcare, we've heard about construction-related issues, all as they intersect with the False Claims Act, which is a real growing area, I think, for DOJ, for our our client base. So it's been uh, great that your team has been spearheading this podcast series. And this is a terrific capper for that series, right? Because we're going to talk about DOJ's report, the statistics they came out with on all their False Claims Act activity last year, which that gives some really good insights on what DOJ is up to in this area, right? Right. So it gives the the hard statistics, the number of cases or matters that were initiated, the brass tax or the money that comes in. But also it compiles some of the major cases and you can see the trends in the numbers and how they have changed from prior years. So the interesting thing about the False Claims Act is that it really affects all government contractors or Hopefully it doesn't, but potentially it could. So yeah, we've touched on a number of topics in this series, and we're going to touch on, frankly, probably all of them today, just going over the annual statistics. So if you're an FCA nerd like me, this is this is what you wait this for. Is for this you. is for you. Yeah. yeah. Get your coffee ready. This is going to be exciting. So hopefully everybody listening has already gone through the earlier episodes in this series. But for those that might be joining us for the first time, you want to start off just giving a sort of a high level overview of when we say False Claims Act, or I'm probably going to fall into it a lot and just say FCA. What are we talking about? Sure. So we're actually talking about the government's primary vehicle for recovering money that's either paid out or retained by fraud. So what I mean by that is when a government contractor or a company receiving money from the government submits an invoice, gets paid for work that it was done or potentially not done, the false claim is either the amount was incorrect, 
For instance, you're billing for a million dollars when you really only did $800,000 worth of work. You're retaining money that you weren't entitled to. Sometimes that's property that perhaps the government has leased out to a contractor and then the, the contractor doesn't return the property to the government at the end. Or it could potentially be a false certification or a material misrepresentation made in conjunction with asking the government for money. And, and that's really where the trends are over the last few years, these certifications and implied certifications that have been in some way false or misrepresented to the government, and it leads the government to pay an invoice that perhaps, arguably, it wouldn't have paid otherwise. And that's what I am seeing a lot in our government contracts group, specifically related to small business program compliance issues and the representations that you make when you're a hub zone contractor exactly. or when you're a service-disabled, veteran-owned small business and the liability that attaches to that, that maybe contractors don't realize the significance of signing, or maybe you're not signing so much anymore as you are clicking the box, but the the significance of that under the False Claims Act. And I know that's an area that you and I work together a lot on. It's a good crossover between the government contracts group and the litigation group. You want to talk a little bit about what the litigation group does there? Sure. Of course, as the litigation group, we handle all of the litigation that comes into the office, employment, corporate disputes, but we have seen a huge uptick in False Claims Act cases over the last couple of years because of this renewed focus by the DOJ on the False Claims Act under this current administration. And so the litigation department, with regard to False Claims Act matters, we, we actually handle things from soup to nuts. You know, someone comes in with a, a subpoena or what's called a civil investigative demand, which is either a request for documents, sometimes it's a request for an interview of some stakeholder. And that's sort of the first step. You might be involved in an audit or an investigation that maybe touches on the False Claims Act or a whistleblower has reported something to an OIG, an Office of Inspector General. We will represent a, a contractor throughout that process. If eventually litigation transpires as a result, we'll represent a contractor through that process as well. So we're paying very close attention to where the trends are so that we can notify our clients in advance, make sure that they're keeping up with compliance requirements and understanding what DOJ is looking at and, and how really to respond once we sort of meet each of these steps along the way whether it be the very first instance of a, of a complaint or when we get hot and heavy in litigation. Yeah, so it's a, it's a really interesting opportunity, I guess, to get some insights from your potential adversary in cases like this, which is DOJ, right? Absolutely. So, so what do some of the trends show us over the last year? Okay, so I'm going to hit the, the high points from the DOJ's annual statistics and report because I think that those really spoke to me sort of at a high level about where things have been for the last year and where things are going for the next couple years. So first, the overall new matters filed or initiated increased slightly. This That's not a surprise. They typically go up or down within a few, maybe a dozen here or there every year. In general, the overall new matters have increased over time, but for the most part, they stay within, for the nerds out there, just like me, a one standard deviation or so. The interesting thing that was in the numbers this year, though, was that during fiscal 2019, the number of matters initiated by the government increased substantially, almost 20%. And what that tells me is that the government is focusing more on its audits and investigations than it is on whistleblowers initiating 
what's called a key tam suit, or, um, which is a false claims act suit brought by an individual on behalf of the government. Historically, particularly over the last decade, about 80% of the False Claims Act cases have been brought by whistleblowers independently, and then the government elects whether to intervene in the case and proceed under its own name or to sort of stand by and just monitor and allow the whistleblower to, to handle the litigation. So that sharp increase in the number of matters initiated by the government stood out to me because it was substantially different than the trends we've been seeing over the last decade. I would guess, but you tell me that as a contractor community, we would generally speaking would rather see a less interested DOJ in terms of the bringing of these cases on their own. Is that not, that's not a positive trend. Correct. I mean, certainly we would, I have no problem with the DOJ enforcing the FCA where it's appropriate. To an extent though, that number could indicate a bit of overreaching. This is for this attorney general and particularly this division chief. They have made the False Claims Act sort of a highlight of their current practice. This is somewhere where they think that they can recover a lot of money. And frankly, I have seen some cases where I think there has been some overreaching. So there are plenty of times when FCA cases are appropriate, they should be brought, they should be defended, and a result should happen. But that does worry me that this number is generally coming from internal audits and investigations. This number is increasing. Are there any statistics on the number of cases filed by relators that the DOJ decides to join in? And is that also increasing? It's actually not increasing. It's, it's staying relatively stable. I'm running everything off of sort of percentages because the, when the numbers of DOJ-initiated new matters increase, you would imagine seeing a slight decrease in the number of matters that a relator files, which is what we saw slightly in 2019. When you have the DOJ intervene in a case, it's a little difficult to line up the numbers because what we're seeing is new matters initiated in 2019. That's actually anything that was initiated, whether it be a lawsuit or a key TAM suit or an investigation. So that's the first thing that happens. But of course, the monetary recoveries that we're talking about, those are for cases that have been going on for a long time. I mean, as you and I both know, typically we're not settling or getting a False Claims Act matter dismissed within the first three or four months. So if something is filed in June for a long time, of 2019, yeah. we're t we don't have all of the information we need about those new initial matters to, to really tell us how things are going to change with the government's intervening or declining to intervene in those yeah, actions. I mean, you, you and I had hair back when some of these cases started. I think I've, you know we've had some that have been going on for a long time here. I will say I haven't had hair in about 25 years, so <laughs> <laughs> probably not, but um, I understand yeah, that. They take, a long, they take a long time to be resolved, although we just had a great win in one. I don't know how long that had gone on, but why don't you tell us a little right. bit about that one came to a nice shorter conclusion than maybe we had originally thought. Right. So our FCA team, I happen to be the chair of our False Claims Act team, which is sort of a branch of all of our practice groups here at the firm. And we received an amended KETAM suit about eight months ago. And when I say amended KETAM suit, this is a whistleblower who has proceeded to file a lawsuit against a number of government contractors and incidentally some commercial businesses that do not do business with the government. 
claiming that a number of businesses were affiliated and therefore they had re- and they had received small business contracts and because they were affiliated they therefore were not eligible for these contracts and had received money from the government despite the fact that they had performed the contract under false pretenses so we happened to represent a defendant in that case we filed a motion to dismiss about 2 months into the case and last week we received an order from the court dismissing the case I'm not going to reveal too Fantastic. many yeah. <laughs> too many details about it but we're optimistic that that's the end of any potential claim against our client and frankly against any of the other defendants who are named in the suit but that's actually a very good segue to talking about small business fraud which is something that you had talked a little bit about in the intro and we had had Michelle Litikin in about a month ago to to do a podcast on that topic 2019 saw one of the largest if not the largest recovery ever in a settlement for small business fraud this was a case that frankly the number of articles that were written about this case were were pretty significant it was pretty shocking to a, a significant portion of the government contracting community it's a company from Virginia and they had very similar to the case that I just described, had a number of companies, all of which were acting as small businesses, and they were argued to be affiliated, but they were kept receiving small business contracts. I believe that the settlement eclipsed $35 million, and it was distributed amongst the subsidiary companies and the owners of the companies who had essentially signed off on the representations and certifications that these government contractors were small. So that was a really big case in 2019. Absolutely. And was that a whistleblower case? Do you know? It was a whistleblower so case. So somebody got a nice payday out um, of that. Was, it like, a, was it like a disgruntled employee or? I didn't dig too deep to see whether it was a disgruntled employee. It was a whistleblower. Generally speaking, a whistleblower can be a disgruntled employee. We see that a lot, but it also could be a competitor. It could be a competitor, um, right. And so in these instances, you sort of have to understand the audience and make sure that you're not just checking boxes, as you described earlier. You actually need to pay attention to compliance, make sure that you're double checking and triple checking your numbers to make sure that you're within the size limit for a given contract and that your team, your finance team, maybe your CFO understands what your small business size standard is for a, for a given contract so that all of those certifications can be made on a case-by-case basis for each contract you're bidding on. Yeah, and I know we've worked with a lot of small businesses to develop internal policies and procedures around making your small business representations so that for exactly the point you just made, so that all your people know the significance, first of all, how the government makes these determinations, because the rules are not easy to follow, especially I work a lot with the HUBZone program. SBA's made strides to simplify those rules, but they're still very challenging to follow. So you want to make sure you have awareness and understanding within the com- everybody in the company that might be checking a box. And then you have good procedures for, like, just as an example, every time the calendar turns over, now we have a new year to add into our now it's a five year average, maybe, but you know, are we still small? Right. And make sure that dis- that decision is made and documented, and then everybody is solid when we're checking the box small. We're actually small. So there's, I think, the prevalence of these small business cases and that 
big one that you're talking about, somebody really rang the bell, just puts even more emphasis on this ounce of prevention that right. you do inside the company to make sure that you really understand these complex small business rules before you're checking the box. Absolutely. And I would actually recommend having a checklist and have a calendar tickler that reminds you to check all of your NAICS codes the the moment the year turns over when you have your revenue numbers from the last fiscal year. And, and have a training so all your people understand how that works. I mean, it's sort of a shameless self-promotion, I guess, maybe, but it's, it is literally an ounce of prevention that can go a long way if you end up receiving a subpoena or a CID or, or, or something like that, which is unfortunately, and as the statistics seem to bear out, increasingly common for small business contractors. Are there other areas where the False Claims Act activity industries or segments of the contractor base like small business where there seems to be more False Claims Act activity? Yes. Yeah, so year after year, the primary target for False Claims Act litigation and investigations is the healthcare industry. Because there are so many healthcare providers providing services that are subject to Medicare or Medicaid, they are particularly subject to potential misrepresentations under the False Claims Act or improper invoicing or a number of other statutes that, that sort of piggyback the False Claims Act, including the anti-kickback statute. So that's an interesting fact from... 2019, which is pretty consistent with prior years, is about 80% of the annual monetary recoveries from the False Claims Act matters arise out of the healthcare industry. There's also been a sharp increase in False Claims Act recoveries coming out of the defense industry. Typically, that has not been a hotbed of False Claims Act activity. But in 2019, recoveries from the defense industry more than doubled from 2018. I'm expecting them to go up probably exponentially over the next few years, because the defense industry obviously has significant cybersecurity requirements that they have to meet and numerous certifications and implied certifications that are subject, defense contractors are subject to. And 2019 actually saw the beginning of sort of the cybersecurity false claims act genre. That's going to be a hotbed, don't you? Right. I mean, that's what we talked about, I think, in one of the earlier episodes. We're working a lot in our cybersecurity and data privacy practice group here with the specifics of this growing area of requirements for DOD contractors. There's something called the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, or CMMC, which is coming online here in 2020. It's going to be a requirement eventually for all DOD contractors. And what's really interesting for this discussion, I think, is that DOD has come up with CMMC. The need for CMMC is driven by the fact that they've had these cybersecurity requirements in their contracts for a number of years now, but they're not seeing the compliance because it's been a self-certification. They don't have the resources to go out and audit and do enforcement on the vast majority of DOD contractors. So to address that, we're going to move to a third-party certification that you're going to have to have in order to go get contracts with DOD. So I think. Ultimately, that third-party certification might actually lessen False Claims Act exposure for contractors, right? Because you're either going to have the certification or you're not. But the, the fact that we sense this need to have a certification, to me, doesn't that confirm the existence of a potential False Claims Act liability for what's been going on up to this point? Oh, absolutely. And fiscal 2019 showed us 
what we had expected since basically 2013 or so is that there were going to be false claims act cases and and perhaps just investigations as well related to cybersecurity requirements and so 2019 saw two such cases the first earlier in the year was the Aerojet case and that was a case there was a podcast that we did the very i think the very first podcast in this series was about cybersecurity and and the Aerojet case, which had just come out a, a, about a month or two earlier than that. What happened in that case was Aerojet was required to meet certain cybersecurity requirements, NIST 800-171. And I'll let you describe what exactly that means, because that is not my specialty. But generally, what we're talking about here is that there is a required certification of, a cybersecu- of cybersecurity compliance. And Aerojet essentially admits that it was not in compliance and had notified the contracting officer that it was not going to be in compliance. And a whistleblower reported anyway and filed a lawsuit and the the government, I believe, declined to intervene. And the district court in California said, it doesn't matter that the government knew you weren't in compliance. That may have changed, the, the lack of compliance may have changed the way this, the government was going to pay you or was going to issue this contract. So that was on a motion to dismiss. We don't know if that's going to turn into liability. And frankly, I think that the government knowing they weren't in compliance might get Aerojet Yeah, off. because, right. I, I was going to say, there's an interesting debate there on the other side of that Escobar. And there was exactly. a recent Tenth Circuit ruling that... On materiality, I mean, a lot of these cases, a lot of times, do come down to that issue, right? right? Did the government pay? Did the government know? When did they know? What did they know? And they right. let they let you keep doing whatever you were doing. Exactly. And di- if the contracting officer knew you weren't in compliance and still issued that check, there's a reasonable question to wonder whether that's really a material part of that contract. But in this case, the district court sitting in California said, "I'm not going to dismiss this case right now." You know, we're going to have to go through discovery. We're going to have to interview some, perhaps the contracting officer, maybe some other contracting personnel, probably the defendant, the plaintiff. We're going to need to find out who knew what, when, what their knowledge really meant for the payment on that contract. And so, you know, if I was a betting man, I'd say there's probably not going to be significant liability there because the government did acknowledge having received notice that Aerojet was not in compliance. But you never know. That's the yeah. problem with FCA litigation. And, you know, maybe it's not all that significant in terms of just sort of the nuts and bolts of a typical FCA case, but it sent off an alarm in terms of, oh, wow, that's right. Cybersecurity could be the subject of this type of a complaint. You could have a whistleblower, and this is a, a looming issue for right. a lot of contractors. I think that's why it caught a lot of attention. Right. But even in catching all that attention, a lot of lawyers perhaps misguidedly said, well, this is just a motion to dismiss. It doesn't mean anything as far as liability is concerned. And then we, a couple months later, had the first ever Cybersecurity False Claims Act settlement in the Glenn case, which was arising out of New York. And the thing about that case, I think, that is even more scary for government contractors is that it involved NIST 800-53, which is actually the government's cybersecurity requirement. It's not, it's not an obligation of the contractor, an express obligation of the contractor to comply. So this settlement, and granted, again, it's not a jury verdict, it's not a court ruling that there is absolute liability here, but it's a settlement. 
so there was some, at least some business judgment made there that there was, you know, they had Cisco is the defendant in this case, and they had to make a decision about whether to settle it. And they did so here. And this is an implied certification. In other words, the argument was that the government would not have awarded this contract to Cisco unless it was assured that Cisco could allow the government through its performance to meet the government's obligations for cybersecurity. And so it's sort of a double-ended implied certification there. And this got a lot of press. I mean, this was a very scary moment because suddenly we're talking about a settlement. You know, there's money exchanging hands. It's not just paying your attorney. It was paying your attorney and more than $8 million to the federal government. So cybersecurity is a pretty big deal in 2019. Yeah, you know, I was going to say, you'd much rather, if you're listening to this, deal with me than deal with Matt. Because if you call me on the front end for help and understanding, what are these cybersecurity requirements in my contract? What do I need to be doing? What is CMMC? It's no commentary on my personality versus Matt's personality. It's just that when you end up, you'd probably rather deal with Matt, frankly, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, everything else being equal. But when it ends up in Matt's court, in the litigation team, I mean, that means it's just a different ballgame, right? So the my tricks from a compliance, so to speak, from a compliance standpoint, things I'd like you to implement, we can do those after the fact, but they're not necessarily going to change what happened when the alleged misconduct occurred. And then you're you know, dealing with motions practice and discovery, and you're making business judgments around settlement. I mean, that th- those are all expensive and and difficult things to go through, right? Absolutely. You know, in the grand scheme of things, as we talked about a little earlier, we've had cases in this office that have been going on for five, six years. And even if you're absolutely innocent, the case alone is expensive and time-consuming and distracting, keeps you away from thinking about marketing your business and making yourself a better contractor. And then on top of it, an inadvertent mistake can be very, very costly. Now, in the False Claims Act, you've got to prove a knowing misrepresentation or reckless disregard for the truth. So there are protections baked into the False Claims Act. But sometimes inadvertence looks like intentional. And so I think that obviously compliance on the front end is any contractors, frankly, any commercial business that does work with government contractors, that's where you should be investing your time and energy to make sure you're in compliance from the very beginning to avoid the potential ramifications that are more expensive down the road. You just don't want to have your head in the sand. I think that's one of my key pieces of advice when I talk with clients. You know, I I don't think we've ever had a client that's intentionally done something wrong, but there are, like you say, inadvertent mistakes but where does where does the line drawn on what you you innocently you know you did your diligence to try to understand complex requirements but nevertheless made a mistake versus you just had your head in the sand you were out to lunch so what else comes out of the DOJ statistics and sort of when you're looking back at last year and forecasting for this year, there maybe would be some positive trends or takeaways that contractors can really use to avoid having to call you. So I would actually, not so much from the DOJ report, but from some cases and from some announcements by DOJ that they made, I would draw more favor from those. 
Earlier in the year, DOJ announced the formalization of guidelines to allow for cooperation credits. This was a pretty big deal. I mean, it, it had been in the works for some time, and there had been some informal memoranda in DOJ about giving people cooperation for credit for cooperating with a DOJ investigation. But now it's formal guidance for AUSA's assistant United States attorneys who may be handling False Claims Act materials. What these guidelines basically say is, you know, a contractor might encounter a False Claims Act issue because there might be a bad actor in either that their their subcontractor or their prime contractor or an employee, a rogue employee could be marking up invoices without anyone else really knowing about it. So if the government finds out about these potential misrepresentations and reaches out to the contractor, cooperating with that investigation can go a long way to helping limit the kind of liability that you could potentially see if you go hardcore and fight every step of the way. So some of the things that you can do are you can essentially give the Department of Justice access to witnesses, you can provide documents, you can, what we've described it on this side is we can basically hand over the bad actor to the DOJ and let DOJ handle it from there. And often you may not be able to get off completely free of financial liability, but you can at least limit that liability substantially. And so DOJ coming out with these, this sort of finalized guidance is really a boon for government contractors who are trying to do the right thing and who may have discovered a bad actor or may have discovered an inadvertent mistake in the way they've been billing a, an agency. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important that you don't go it alone when you find yourself in that situation. You need an experienced quarterback to take you through that process. So when I say help contractors avoid having to call you, meaning like avoid the litigation right. part of it. But really, there's a role for your team before it gets to that point. And really, and that's, I think, the hidden gem of our litigation practice is that not even litigating. It is actually to avoid litigating, right? Exactly. Most of my day is not spent doing the nuts and bolts of actual litigation. It's about talking to clients and giving them risk management advice, explaining ways that they can avoid litigation, and honestly, crafting contracts and, and compliance materials that allow government contractors to stay sort of above the fray and not face these expensive and difficult to deal with litigation matters that might arise if there is, you know, even an inadvertent or mi extremely minor mistake in the grand scheme of things. So anything else takeaways from the year in review? There's one more good thing for government contractors that sort of developed over the last couple of years and sort of took maybe moved into the final stretch in 2019. There's a informal DOJ guidance called the Granston Memo. And that under the False Claims Act, the government is allowed to pursue a motion to dismiss in a False Claims Act case that is filed by a whistleblower. So a relator in a key TAM action files the suit. The government is given notice first before anyone else finds out about the case because the cases are filed under seal. The government can actually move to dismiss. And the reason they're allowed to do this is because bad cases make bad law. That's something that I learned my first year in law school. And it's sort of this rule, this unspoken or at least unwritten rule where you don't want to proceed with a case that could end up hurting your ability to enforce the FCA later. So the DOJ has taken the position that they should move to dismiss certain cases because they're either frivolous or that they're going to hurt FCA liability in the future. For instance, 
it would be very likely for DOJ to, to see an inadvertent mistake that might ultimately have resulted in an incorrect invoice to the government and move to dismiss that case so that there's not an adverse ruling from a judge saying this was inadvertent and then creating a more difficult pathway to liability in the future for DOJ. So that's great. What has ended up happening is over 95% of the times that DOJ has sought dismissal, the court has agreed and actually dismissed the case. So they're sort of stepping into the, almost the shoes of the defendant to sort of knock out some of these particularly egregious whistleblower cases. Now, I say all of this with a little bit of a grain of salt because it doesn't happen that often. You know, we're still only talking about a few percentage points out of the whole of the FCA cases, but it's not insignificant. And if you're doing everything right, if you're cooperating with the government, if you're producing the documents, as we've talked about cooperating with this investigation, then you're more likely to get that the assistance of the government in filing that motion to dismiss. And like I said, if you can get, if 95% success rate is knocking these cases out when the government asks for that, then, I mean, that's an A in, by any metric. So that's sort of the, the two big things that happened that are great for contractors in 2019. And it appears that the government is going to try and continue those trends moving forward. So cooperation credits are going to continue to be adopted and help government contractors. And they're going to continue to, perhaps with increased frequency, seek dismissal of frivolous cases. That's great. Those are very positive developments. All right. So, Counselor, any closing arguments? I kind of want to piggyback off of what you said, which is also something that my grandmother used to say to me. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I think that that's what you should take away from these statistics that DOJ releases and the decisions that various courts issued in 2019. Front load your compliance front load your in, your internal investigations and internal auditing and pay attention to the sort of the little details. You know, check that number in the Excel sheet. Check the formula. Make sure you know exactly what you're doing and submitting to the government. Make sure you're you're checking your numbers when you're making your reps and certs in SAM for small business purposes. And don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, don't assume that you know everything. I think that lawyers don't know everything, but they're in a better position to find the answer. And if you ask the questions all the way along the way, you're in the best position possible to avoid the kind of liability that you see with some, you know, 2019, $36 million settlement in a small business fraud case. So if you can front load all of those sort of helpful hints for running your business, then you're probably going to be in a good position moving forward. Great. Matt Feinberg, thanks so much. Uh, Thanks, John. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a Polero Mazza production, and music credits go to bensound.com. I've been your host, John Williams. Please subscribe to hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.